0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy mcphee Olibest. Black cats, broomsticks, and a history of patriarchal oppression. This podcast has discussed witchcraft and witch hunts specifically in the past. Back in May, we were joined by Lucy Olibest to explore how the label witch has been historically levied against women as a means of persecution and control punishing them for a long list of imaginary crimes like devouring children and consorting with the devil. Those who were unjustly accused of witchcraft often faced horrific punishment. So can we even imagine the prejudice which actual self-identified witches would have faced? The very word itself, witch, has become a slur against women all across the English-speaking world. And yet the beliefs and practices of witchcraft have never died out. In fact, it's believed that the number of modern-day witches is on the rise. According to a 2014 survey from the Pew Research Center, there are an estimated 1 to 1.5 million Americans openly practicing witchcraft in one form or another. In all likelihood, those numbers have only increased in the years since 2014. TikTokers, for example, sharing witch-based content, have amassed over 20 billion views under the hashtag witchtalk. And as the trend grows, major retailers, including Sephora and Urban Outfitters and many more, have eagerly started selling mystical crystals and spell books and other witchy paraphernalia, hoping to cash in on the growing movement. And yet, all of this still leaves us with the question, who exactly are these self-professed witches? Some of you may even be wondering, is witchcraft actually real? So to help cut through misinformation and shine a light directly on what witchcraft looks like today, we decided to go straight to the source. And fortunately, we found a present day practicing witch who was willing to sit down with our podcast editor, Sam Rose, for a conversation about ritual, history, stereotypes, and the self-identified witches who still walk among us. And with that, I'll turn things over to Sam to introduce our guest.
1: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Sam Preminger, pronouns are they, them, and maybe you've heard my voice once or twice on the feed before, but I'm sneaking out one more time from being your behind-the-scenes editor in order to talk to just the most incredible guest. This guest is a student of Jungian psychology and has been a practicing witch for over 40 years, and she's agreed to come on the podcast to tell us about herbcraft and rituals about gods and devils and what it's like to be a present-day practicing witch. It's going to be such a great episode, and you're going to learn a whole bunch about witchcraft and how it helps fight patriarchy. But before we get into it, I'm going to let her introduce herself. Would you mind just telling us your name and your pronouns and maybe a little bit about yourself to start? Hi, it's good to be here.
2: My name is Carrie, and my pronouns are typically she and her, but it, it doesn't matter to me. This I've been doing this for a long time, so you know a lot of things i I might forget
1: to mention something, but I'll try to be as thorough as possible. Amazing, thank you so much. I'd also like to just add that although Carrie and I didn't know each other before this interview, she's been like the most splendid person to work with and uh-huh. talk to and learn from. She's clearly so generous with her knowledge and time, and I am delighted to have them here to chat with us today. So maybe we have. A few witches out there listening to us, I don't know for sure, but I'm betting that for many folks, the idea of witchcraft still conjures up flying broomsticks and bubbling cauldrons. Could you give us a quick walkthrough of what being a contemporary witch actually entails? Sure.
2: Well, (laughs) asking what a witch is and and what she does is, is kind of like asking how long is a piece of string. Um which is a very diverse word and it covers a lot of territory. So I'd like to preface by mentioning that whatever I say is based solely on my own experiences, my own learning, and my own interaction with other witches and traditions. For some witches, witchcraft is part of their religion, and for others, like myself, it's simply a practice and has nothing to do with religion. There are many, many practices and traditions in the scope of witchcraft. You have Gardnerians, you have Wiccans, you have Strega, there are the Dianics. There there's so many different traditions. It's actually quite wonderful. I think the most widely recognized tradition by the general public would be the Wiccans, because they have been very vocal. So a lot of people are more aware of them. But even within the Wiccan tradition, there's quite a bit of diversity. Some witches you can recognize quite easily by what they wear. Most of them just look like everybody else. You wouldn't know they were witches unless they told you. Some witches engage in full-blown ritual, and some work within specific covens, and others are solitary and work alone in whatever manner that they want to. I guess the most common denominator is a a deep respect for the feminine principle and a deep sense of connection to, with, and, and respect for nature, as well as the incorporation of our practices and whatever we do in everyday life. Witchcraft isn't something that's only practiced on a certain day. It's an integral part of who we are and it touches everything we do some way.
1: That sounds incredible, but okay. Silly question. Do you have to be spooky 24 (laughs) seven?
2: Well, I I guess it depends on how you define spooky. I know lots of non-witches that are pretty spooky, but no, no, we don't have to look or act like anything in particular. Some of your neighbors and people you interact with every day might be witches. The people in, you know, your grocer or your bartender or whatever, they might be witches. The lady at the PTA meeting, who knows? You wouldn't know them to look at them, and, and we do the same things everybody else does for the most part. It's gotten a lot better over the years, but there's still a stigma attached with being a witch in a lot of places, you know, at best are treated with amusement or condescension. And at worst, we can lose our jobs, our spouses, and even our children. So understandably, some witches are pretty private. They stay and we call it being in the broom closet. And <laughs> <laughs> others are very visual and vocal about who they are. There's there's no doubt about who they are. So it, it all depends. It really does. I just kind of go about my business and do my thing and let people draw their own conclusions. Some of which are <laughs> pretty funny. But I'll answer questions if they're asked of me, as long as they're respectful and genuine. And that's worked out real well for me so far.
1: All right. Well, one more slightly silly question for you then, but I have to know are there actually any black cats or broomsticks involved?
2: <laughs> no, it's really not a silly question. These are very common conceptions. Once again, it depends, and I'm sorry to have to keep saying that, but it really is true. There's so much diversity in the community. The broom, or besom, as it's called, is symbolic, and it's used by some witches in rituals, or some have it in the household. Um, But it's not mandatory, and nor do all witches use them. These are all tools that we use. You don't have to have a broom to be a witch, or it doesn't define you or anything. They're symbolic in nature, the tools, and they just represent various ideas and connections. But they have to resonate or speak to the witch on a psychological level in order to be effective. The real power behind any implement comes from the witch herself. So... Technically, somebody could use a pretzel stick for a wand. (laughs) If they have the right mindset, they have the same results as someone who is using some expensive, elaborately carved traditional one. But a lot of witches like to make their own tools. And I think those are probably the most potent because they are connected and have meaning to the practitioner. Have you made any of your own tools? I make a lot of things, sure. Those are the ones that... They're meaningful to me. That's what gives them power. Let's see, as far as the cats. <laughs> Most witches like cats. I don't know. It's, at least I've seen them. Most of them like cats and some of them like dogs. And some have familiars. That's why they assume you're talking about the concept of the familiar. Some have them and some don't. Traditionally, a familiar is not a house pet, though. It's usually a wild animal that comes of its own volition and it comes and goes as it pleases. But again, you you have witches, some witches will uh, assign a, a house pet the role of a familiar if they love them very much, and they'll employ the pet to participate in their works or rituals. I have a black cat, but that's got nothing to do with being a witch. His name is Jimmy, by the way. He's just my little buddy that lives with me and happens to have black fur. I prefer to adopt black cats because, believe it or not, there's still a stigma against them in the minds of the general populace. I've learned from various shelters that are often overlooked as pets because they consider them bad luck or associate them with evil practices. Uh, this is a very sad thing. On on Halloween, some of the shelters won't allow the adoption of black cats because there have been cases in which people would get them and kill them because of this, this stigma. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's superstition dies hard even a society that prides itself on being rational.
1: Oh, that's awful to hear, but I'm very glad there's people like you out there giving the black cat some love. <laughs> <laughs> so if, like you said, witches can look like anything, it might be the person checking you out at the grocery store, but then where do we get these cultural ideas of the green-skinned Halloween witch? Hmm, yeah, there was a
2: time when when an old woman or the elders were considered a source of wisdom but that again was before the patriarchy the image of the old green skin hag comes from uh, the idea that old women are somehow frightening or malevolent or suspect somehow of what they do and that notion still kind of lives in our society today in some cases the attitude had to do with getting rid of a woman who is considered to be no longer of value because she could no longer bear children or wasn't considered attractive. And we can see that today in our obsessively youth-centric society. Old women are treated very badly in a lot of places. If you see an older man, they he's offered the mantle of respect and experience and wisdom, but an old woman, people feel disgusted when they see her or they, they make fun of her. or some, some people are even afraid of them. If a woman were unmarried past a certain time frame or chose to live alone or was considered too independent, too outspoken, or it basically didn't fit into what the society's notion of what a woman was supposed to be. She was either disempowered or vilified, especially if she was old. Some women found themselves in that position, especially if they were ostracized in some way. The only way for them to stay alive was to play upon the superstitions of the villagers and gain a reputation that caused them to leave her alone. But that was kind of risky because that same tactic could mean a death sentence if she upset the wrong people or threatened the status quo too much.
1: Wow. So it's becoming pretty clear that a lot of those ideas of the witch that we might get from media and Halloween decorations are pretty far off the mark.
2: Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> most witches are, are very nice people, and they look just like everybody else. So they're, they're, I mean, I'm
1: sure some are old ladies, but <laughs> most, most of them aren't. Uh, well, there's nothing wrong with that. No, there isn't. What are some of the other common misconceptions about witches and witchcrafts that you've come across? Would you um, like to correct any of those for? Yes,
2: I would. I do not worship the devil. <laughs> I get that a lot. Modern witchcraft is based on ancient pagan practices. The devil, as, as we commonly portray the image, is actually based on the pagan horn god that was taken and demonized by the advent of Christianity. But this devil is a Christian concept. Most witches I know don't even recognize, much less worship. I guess that kind of ties in with another question I get, which is, are you a good witch or a bad witch? <laughs> I always say that depends on who you ask. Once again, witches are a highly diverse group and they follow different codes. So you'll hear a lot of them mention something called the law of three that says whatever you send out will come back to you threefold. Other witches don't have any such constraints about what they will and will not do. So you can't make assumptions. I'm personally of the latter variety. So yeah, I'm a witch, but whether I'm a good witch or a bad witch depends entirely on the situation and on the individual in question. I'm not malicious by nature. I don't go around trying to harm people or curse their cattle or whatever the heck people think we do. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a, there's a little side note that some, some people might find interesting is that they think that only women can be witches, which is not at all true. There are a lot of male witches. And a male witch is called a witch, not a warlock. Because if you call one a warlock, you might get really mad. Because the word warlock comes from the, an old English word that means liar, oathbreaker, traitor. It's not a good name. If you've come across a male witch, it's called a witch. So, it'll be fine.
1: That is very good to know. I had no idea. <laughs> but, okay, let's rewind for a second. How did you first come to witchcraft?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that started, I was very, very young. Actually, I was in grade school. And it started by my anger and disillusionment with the hypocritical and patriarchal position of the Catholic Church. That's what I was raised under. I had a big problem with God. I didn't like him. <laughs> I thought he was a bully and sadistic, like a little kid burning ants. Guarded for fun. He just didn't make sense to me. From everything I was told, he, he's supposed to be this kind, loving being, but he struck me as being very cruel and vindictive and I'm supposed to obey him. But the the more I learned, the more I disliked and distrusted him. Just some of the stories, you know, like I look at the Noah's Ark thing. He drowned everyone and everything except a handful of people and a few animals because he was annoyed. How, How does that make sense? If he was all knowing, then he would know that there was going to be a problem. So I can only assume he did that because he wanted to. And if he's not all knowing, then he's a liar. I I wasn't, wasn't happy with it. And Adam and Eve, that was, that was pretty bad. Eve got blamed essentially for the downfall of humanity. So you have this God, puts this tree here and says, I'm going to give you free will, but don't eat from there. Now, he had to know they were going to do that. I mean, come on, even I knew that as a little kid. You can't tell people not to do things. It's, just, it's not like that. It's, it's a temptation thing. He just didn't seem to have anything to do but go around scaring people and setting them up to be punished. It's like he wanted to punish them. And then insisting that they love and obey and worship him for it. He sounded more like a devil, quote, unquote, than God's to me. The only female figure we had was Mary, who was... She was nice, but she was very she was a very docile and subservient figure, again, to this father-god figure. Even the saints that were considered to be important were all male. Closest we had was the warrior maiden figure, Joan of Arc, but she got burned. So, needless to say, none of that sat well within the church, and I got into a lot of trouble. But <laughs> the takeaway was the order of things in the order of things, was that men were innately superior to women.
1: Oh, wow. That sounds like such a hard message to be receiving as a child.
2: It's very unhealthy. I feel sorry for the, the young women that, you know, are brought up with that. It's, it gives you such a, a negative opinion of your, yourself as a person. It's It's kind of like programming women to be inferior from the start.
1: Oh, and it's just so frustrating to think that so many young women are still receiving that messaging. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it is. It's bad.
1: But how did that male superiority you mentioned manifest in your own church?
2: I wanted to be an altar boy like my brothers. I actually like the church. I like the stuff in it. It was very pretty and it smelled good and everything. You know, I I liked it there. And I wanted to be an altar boy like my brothers were. And I was told that because I was female, I couldn't do that. Basically, because I was somehow, I guess, tainted, I couldn't touch the holy items because it would offend God. That <laughs> made no sense. It's like, you, but you made women, but you don't like them? I, I don't understand these people. There was just this constant undercurrent that... You know, women were to blame for the downfall again of humanity and they were easily manipulated and spiritually weak and that all got passed down to us. It just came up in so many ways, but that in particular was one I remember. I had an innate sense of spirituality. I always believed there was more than what we saw. So I just kind of decided I didn't care. I didn't want anything to do with them anymore. I think that the whole... Uh, not touching the stuff thing has probably changed within the church by now. I really don't know. But still, it's, it's a patriarchal religion. There's still this undercurrent of male superiority. And it's offensive and extremely unhealthy. It, it would take more time than we have to unpack all the examples. But all of the Abrahamic religions are patriarchal. Innately, by their nature, by being what they are, they place women in
1: the inferior position. I take it then that witchcraft is a little bit different. (laughs) Uh, A lot different, yeah. Where did you first learn about witches and what drew you
2: into learning more? At a very early age, I'd always been fascinated by things like cult or by history, by psychology, by mythology, folklore, and all that kind of thing. I eventually got hold of a book on modern day witchcraft. I was maybe about 13 or so at the time. The books like that, And books on the subject were very hard to find back then. It sounds weird now because you can walk into any bookstore and find them all over the shelves, but it wasn't like that then. So that was very unusual and a rare occurrence. Like we said, I was raised in a patriarchal religion and women were kind of expected to be subservient toward this irrational, misogynistic deity. So when I came across ideas of feminine divinity... And the inherent feminine empowerment really appealed to me. It had never crossed my mind, the idea of a goddess. That was a real new thing because God was a man. God is a man. God is male. So the idea this was possible, I found that very appealing. And it led me to investigate related historical events like the various witch trials in Europe and North America. And I could see a pattern throughout history. You can actually see the decline of women's roles and status, and the pattern of female persecution and demonization that came along with the rise of the patriarchy. Over time, I found books written by feminist authors like Z. Budapest and Margaret Adler, Erica John, and Merlin Stone. She wrote a very good book called "When God Was a Woman," and I'll recommend it to anyone that's interested in in reading about the history of feminine religion Uh, and these books inspired me influenced me a great deal
1: how did finding these things and then leaving your religion affect your relationships with your family and community
2: uh well it it didn't (laughs) I didn't really have a great relationship with my community uh, because I had very different (laughs) ideas than they were trying to teach me to have so I didn't really care what they thought I was also very, very lucky that I have a good relationship with my family as far as being allowed to be my own person. My mother was a wonderful woman who really did encourage us to be our own people and to strike out and learn things and experience things. You know, they were used to me being kind of contentious if something didn't sit right with me. So I guess it, may, it probably didn't surprise them. To tell you the truth. Uh, They loved me. And they, well, they didn't actually support it. Uh, They didn't give me any trouble. You know, as long as I didn't get too obnoxious with it. But yeah, as far as the church went, after a few years, we fought constantly. And I I also went to Catholic school. Which was like twice the fun. (laughs) I was constantly in detention. They got tired of me, I guess. And I... They had kind of like a weird intervention uh, by the Paris priests. I used to call them the holy hitmen. <laughs> and they sort of told me under no under certain terms to leave. Basically, I was kicked up for heresy, I guess.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah, I, I think that yeah, I don't care. I was fine with it. I
1: had no intention of
2: hanging around anyway, but yeah.
1: Well, good. I am glad you are out of there. <laughs> So circling back a little bit, what exactly do those ideas of female divinity and feminine empowerment mean to you?
2: To me, they mean the freedom to recognize and express all that's powerful, strong, wise, and optimal within the condition of being female. To not be stifled or condescended to or shamed for or have to hide. To be able to know and honor ourselves and one another as aspects of the divine feminine, and to meet the masculine as an equal that is treated honorably and respectfully in our society. The goddesses and, and gods were archetypes to me, so I look to the archetypes of the goddesses of old. One of my favorites, and I think one of the most powerful for women, particularly women that have come out of abusive relationships. I used to work on a crisis hotline, and one of the, the most powerful archetypes was Lilith. So for those who don't know who she is, her story, she was said to be Adam's first wife uh, before Eve, and she refused to lie under him, and she refused to be subservient to him and wanted to be his equal. So he wasn't having it, and I guess God wasn't into it, so she left on her own. She went out. Only to be turned later into a demon, child-killing demon, I believe is what they said she was. But uh, then after that, Eve came along, who did what she told for the most part, except the whole apple thing. But <laughs> I mean, well, that was supposed to be the tree of knowledge, so technically, she she did a good thing. I mean, what's wrong with knowledge, right? That's knowledge is good. Yeah, but she was a more docile figure. She was created from under the rib. She was to be the helpmate and all that. Then we have the archetype of the wise woman and the fierce dark mothers. They take on forms like Keridon and Hecate and, and the crone. It's one of my favorites. There's Kali and Pele who embody the destructive power of women's righteous anger. There's the archetypes of the earth mother. They are the embodiment of feminine creativity, the nurturing and life-giving aspects. There are wild women archetypes like the huntress Artemis. Who was fierce, and free, and she didn't answer to any man or man-made society. Sophia, this philosopher goddess. There was Athena, a warrior. She was not only skilled in battle, but she was the ultimate logician and tactician. There, there are so many powerful female archetypes in existence, but we don't really hear about them. And the ones we do hear have been so demonized or domesticated during the rise of the patriarchy that you wouldn't recognize them, really. When we engage with these archetypes, especially during this time when women are still objectified and treated as tertiary and second class, no matter how subtly it's being done, is is actually very empowering. People really like to think that the oppression of women is behind us in our society. I don't know what society they're looking at. It's not this one. Aside from the gross disparity in pay and the blatant objectification, just listen to some of the vernacular, some of the words that people use, that they they use casually. They find it acceptable. And you can see how we're still being denigrated. Like if a man is seen as being weak or cowardly, he's called a pussy, right? If a woman expresses anger, regardless of how justified it might be, she must be on her period. If a man is expressing uh, emotion, he's acting like a chick. If a woman is being strong and assertive, she's called a bitch or a ball buster. If she's successful in her field, even if she had to work twice as hard to get there than her male counterparts, she's, it's suspected she must have slept her way to the top, uh, as if it were impossible for her to achieve any success by her own merit. Men are encouraged to sow their wild oats and be sexual beings and have as many partners as possible. That's not just accepted. It seems as proof of his virility and manhood. He's, He's a stud, right? If a woman is sexually expressive, she's considered promiscuous. She's an object of ridicule. She's a slut, shamed. If she's disrespected or even raped, she was asking for it, right? How many times have you heard that one? All this, it's so common as to, people don't really bat an eye when they hear it. And that's because that these Abrahamic patriarchal ideas have been integrated and affected our society's thinking. Things have gotten better, they've changed, but not half as much as people believe. And that says here in other places, and I was reading not too long ago, the women are, are still burned as witches. Or they're killed for disobeying their man. We would consider these practices barbaric and, and unjust, but we still perpetuate the thinking that creates those kind of acts. So we have a lot to, a lot of work to do. Words have power. They shape how we see and relate to the world around us. When we integrate those words into our speech, we create a frame of reference, and we program ourselves to find them acceptable, to define what we perceive to be true. So, it's very, very important that we become consciously aware of the words we use and the concepts to which we casually give credence. So, this all goes to say that yes, while great strides towards equality have been made, there's still an ingrained undercurrent of misogyny and idea of male superiority that infects our society. It's still inferred that women are weak, irrational, and capable, and invariably need some men to
1: keep her under control. Oh, oh, wow. Thank you for sharing all that, Carrie. I was just glowing listening to you talk about all the goddess archetypes and furious hearing about the way our language still oppresses people. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, though. And if it's okay, I'm going to try to pull just a little bit more out of your brain. Okay. A little bit earlier, you mentioned those historical witch trials that you studied. Were those actually tied to the practice of witchcraft? Were any of the victims actually witches? Very few, actually.
2: Most of the trials were political in nature. You have to understand that these confessions that they got, they got them while these women were undergoing the most brutal forms of torture. It was just unbelievable the things that were done to them. So a person could pretty much confess anything if they thought that it would make them stop. Most of the women that were killed were just midwives or good at healing or craft, or maybe some of them made their neighbors jealous. If a man found a woman overly attractive, she must have bewitched him, of course, or some of them were too vocal in their opinions or just too independent-minded. What happened more often than people realize is that the woman owned land or goods that someone in power wanted to take from her, and that was an expedient way to get it. The trials also was a way to solidify someone's position and validity or cover their own sins and transgressions within the community, especially if they were a religious leader. Women weren't only chattel,
1: they made great scapegoats. Uh, That stuff is so fascinating, but infuriating. Yes, yes, it is. So, yeah, most of those women were innocent of whatever
2: it was they were accused of. They didn't do anything.
1: Well, good to know. Okay, we're not here to talk about women who probably weren't witches. We're here to talk (laughs) about people who definitely are witches. So could you tell us more about what your present-day practice of witchcraft is like? Sure. Traditionally, I am what would be called a hedge
2: witch by definition. And a hedge witch, they're also known as hedge writers or cunning women. In a nutshell, it's just someone who's skilled at herb craft and who quote, unquote, walks between worlds. That sounds, ooh. (laughs) It's just someone who connects the intangible to the tangible. Somebody who works heavily with matters of dreams and visions and doings of the unconscious. Similar to shaman, I think, would probably be something most people are familiar with. We're most and foremost, we're healers. But uh, the shaman and, and hedge witches and what have you. They they also acted as psychiatrists to the village the way before psychiatry became a thing. We're also very solitary and independent and inclined to be scholarly. We have our own practices, so that will vary again from hedgewitch to hedgewitch. And we're also held to be somewhat cantankerous. You know, play well with others, but we will when we have to. Technically, um I, I consider myself a jungian witch. I guess, because my work is not only of a practical nature, but I'm also concerned with the psyche. For me, all gods and goddesses are archetypal manifestations of the collective unconscious that we can tap into and work with, with the conscious mind. So since the unconscious speaks the language of symbols, I employ symbols and rituals for the psychodrama. It's just the way I've found it to be very helpful For tapping into my own unconscious as well as the collective archetypal divine feminine. Uh, Helps me resonate with my higher and shadow self. Higher and lower self. We are not just one thing. We are both things. It's important to integrate them. And it helps me evoke specific aspects of my own mind and psyche. And I found that
1: empowering. Okay. Pause for just a moment. I'm going to ask you to define some of these terms real quick for us. What exactly is (laughs) herbcraft?
2: It's it's basically herbology. That's all. It's just a fancy way of saying herbology. It's just having a working knowledge of the property and law of various herbs that can be used for healing or protection or whatever. More succinctly put, I'm an herbalist with a metaphysical bent.
1: Got it. (laughs) All right. And one more time, what does it mean to walk between two worlds? (laughs) It just sounds so intense.
2: It's just somebody that's good at or has the knowledge, understanding, and skill pertaining to dreams, inner work, active imagination, the unconscious mind, both the individual and collective, and the understanding of how they connect and function in the waking world. And it's someone who is able to visit these realms, a variety of means are used lucidly and by choice. Some people think these realms are external actual places, and others believe they are internal, which is what I do. I believe they are
1: internal places. Okay. So then how do these practices of working with herbs and dreams and goddess archetypes also fit into your daily life when, say, you're also doing your grocery shopping or just watching some Netflix? Uh, Well, like I said, witches are just people.
2: I do the same thing on witches do in my everyday life. I go grocery shopping, I enjoy movies, I mop my floor, do my laundry, all that stuff. The difference, I suppose, is these activities are also infused Mm -hmm. with my awareness of the interconnectedness of nature and of reality. So when I pick vegetables from my garden, I'm aware that these plants are living beings. I'm grateful for their contribution to the well-being of my body, and I'm sure to thank them for it, even if it looks funny. I also will invoke various archetypes when I need to. When I dream, I generally lucid and aware that the images flow that flow from my personal and collective subconscious, so I'm better able to interpret and understand what they're telling me. People think about things like divination or seeing into the future the future is not set in stone you don't see the future what you see is the most logical outcome of a series of events if it follows a given course everything has a pattern to it so the unconscious is very good at putting together patterns so if you can get in touch with that you can have an idea of what's going to happen it's not magic it's psychology it's logic But I spend a lot of time looking inwards and making connections like that to the outer world.
1: That's amazing. And I know you've mentioned you're a bit of a loner, but do you have a sense of what the witchcraft community looks like today? Oh,
2: sure. Yeah. They're actually very active and thriving. I do have some friends that are much more extroverted than I am and are out there in the fields all the time. So I I get a lot of news from them. You know, I'm a solitary practitioner by choice because it's just my nature. But I've I've joined public gatherings, and I I've, I find them tiresome because I'm introverted. But they're also very powerful. They're very moving and, and a lot of fun, really. Like I said, a, a lot of witches get together to celebrate different seasons and pagan holidays. The neo pagan community is quite large, and witches are part of that. On the whole, they're very open minded and accepting of other practices. So. Unless it's like an event held by a specific coven, strictly for its own members, it's not unusual to find a very diverse collection of traditions at any given gathering.
1: That's so cool. And I know we've already tapped into a little bit of information around symbols and rituals. Uh, You mentioned the brooms, or was it besoms? Yeah, I'm probably not
2: saying that right. I never learned how to say that.
1: Everyone (laughs) says it differently. Well, if we're wrong, we're both wrong together, at least. Okay. <laughs> but what do these symbols and rituals mean to you, and why are they so important? Okay. In our society, we place a very high regard
2: on the conscious mind, on consciousness, and it is important. But the unconscious mind is the most powerful and complex driving force we have as human beings. It, it actually influences our thoughts our actions, our behaviors. There's a constant flow of dialogue from it to the conscious mind and it works nonstop. It even shapes our identities and conscious responses. But we, we aren't, because it's unconscious, we don't know that. So it's important to know what's going on back there. If you don't, then you're not really in control of your life, not consciously. So you hear people talk about the ego and how it's a bad thing. The ego is not a bad thing. If we don't have an ego, we have no I. We have no sense of self. So we, we want that. You have to have that in order to be conscious. But the I is just the tip of the iceberg. Our unconscious is the greater part of who we are, even though we're not aware of it. So to me, uh, it's, it's crucial to the raising of consciousness. And consequently, to our evolution, both individually and collectively, to connect to this unconscious, to learn its language, to bring darkness to light, as it were, so that it can be consciously integrated. That's a process that Jung called individuation, and it's seen as the mechanism behind, behind all the striving of a sentient being. This is what we're working for, this is what we do. So, symbols and rituals. And that type of thing, they help me understand the language of my unconscious mind. And it's a way to connect to my own divinity, as well as the divinity of the human condition. Because we are all divine, all of us. We just kind of forgot, but we are. The unconscious, both the collective and the personal, as I said, speaks in symbols. So by bridging that gap, or or seeking to bridge that gap, it forwards our understanding
1: and our evolution. We're just all so much more than we realize. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. I promise I'm going to let you go soon. But before (laughs) I do, let's get down to brass tacks. How can witchcraft help fight patriarchy?
2: It already has. And it's being done through the conscious raising feminist women who practice it. Many of the witches that I've met uh, and that you're apt to meet, have come from a, a patriarchal belief systems. And they're looking for self-empowerment. A lot of times you'll hear them say that a goddess or some form of the divine feminine called to them. Uh, eventually, they'll find that that call is part of a much larger picture. When they embrace the divine feminine, they begin to understand and celebrate their own divinity, as well as that of our sister's. They learn to find their own voice and to speak out and say no more to the status quo. They learn they are not powerless, and they don't need to depend on a patriarchal perspective in order to have a sense of who they are. In other words, they reclaim themselves and take part of, of being integral to cycles and the balance of this world. I remember reading a long time ago, and I think it was in a Ray Bradbury novel, I don't recall which one, quote that said, A witch is born out of the true hungers of her time. The things that are most wrong here summoned me. And I never forgot that. I forgot the book, but I never forgot that quote. The things that are most wrong here summoned me. I think that they're witches because there needs to be. I think that the patriarchy has created such an imbalance of power, such a gross and wholesale destruction, Not only our collective psyches, but our very planet cries out. It's kind of like the human collective summons us. Regardless of how vain and evolved our societies like to think themselves to be, there's still raging inequality and justice placed upon women and the divine feminine principle that is inherent in both the human condition and our environment that's been generated by the rise of the patriarchy. And it has to be addressed and righted. That's the only way we're going to be whole.
1: I wish the circumstances were different, but I am very grateful that you have been summoned. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Carrie. Welcome. Oh my god, I've learned so much here. I hope all of our listeners are going to go out and get themselves a broom and adopt a wild familiar if they want, and thank their vegetables. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) all that good stuff. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great.
0: I'm so glad that we were able to share this fascinating, empowering conversation with all of you listening. Very sadly, our team here at Breaking Down Patriarchy recently learned that in the time since recording this interview, Carrie has passed away. So we are just so grateful that we had the opportunity to share her wisdom and to include her voice in this project As she herself made clear, witches have done so much work to raise feminist consciousness and stand up against patriarchal oppression. And we're so thankful to Carrie for being part of that movement and thankful that she shared her wisdom with us. Before I go, I'd like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Allabest for our social media. Please join us again next week when I will be sitting down with poet, author, and all-around extraordinary human being... Carolyn Lynn Pearson, for a conversation about some of her most influential writings and bridging the schism that comes from being a feminist author within a patriarchal faith tradition. All of this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.